You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. We've heard about the concept uh, the first week on this series of, of treasure from the words of Jesus. Where your heart is, there your treasure is also. And then last week, Josh preached a biblical view of stewardship from the parable of the talents. Next week, Josh is going to be back and preach uh, really some, some practical, concrete uh, truths from the Bible as it relates to finances and giving. How much do we give? How often? What else does the Bible say about giving? But this week, we're going to discuss generosity. And it's a topic that's sensitive uh, for in a lot of ways, but it's one of those things that the very nature of generosity makes it difficult to address. Uh, it's like some other important things in life. If you have friendships, right? Friendship cannot be demanded. It cannot be required. It must be freely given or it ceases to be friendship. If you grab somebody by the collar and say, be my friend, what you're going to get is not friendship, right? We know this in marriage. Romance cannot be forced or required. If you force it, it, it becomes something other than Romance. It's the same with, with our Lord and His grace. We cannot require God to be gracious to us. We cannot deserve it in any way or it ceases to be grace. And so generosity is the same. Uh, it cannot be required. It cannot, you're not generous when you pay your bills. <laughs> that is something required of you. Um, yet, the Bible also says we ought to be ready to give and have a plan on giving. But 2 Corinthians 9 says, Each one should give what he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. So we have this tension here between giving being expected of Christians, uh, but also generosity being something freely done uh, in the Christian life. So how do we strike this balance? I think we can do it today by staying as close as we can to what the Scriptures say. When, we want to, when I want to give an encouragement to a church about giving generously, I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians 8, because that's Paul's encouragement to a church in the Scriptures to give generously. Just to remind us of the situation here, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. This is a struggling church. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians. They were uh, dealing with some really tough issues from matters as basic as how to conduct the Lord's Supper, um, how to have an orderly worship service, um, two moral issues. We have, we have a man sleeping with his stepmother. Serious moral issues. And Paul is leading the church through these and other issues. So we have 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing these issues. 2 Corinthians, Paul has seized that the church is repentant. And so he's leading them in how does a repentant church function. So in the beginning, we, we see Paul encouraging those, that, that, that man that has been in this situation, to welcome him back as he repents. Uh, he addresses the nature of gospel ministry in, in chapters 3 and 4, some of my favorite chapters in the Bible, about that, that the ministry of the Word is something that is dependent on the Holy Spirit who shines light into darkened souls. It's based on an open statement, clear teaching of God's Word. Chapter 5, we see the ministry of reconciliation, that the church is to regard no one according to the flesh, but seek to see everyone around them reconciled to God. In the chapters after we'll read, we'll see Paul further defending his ministry against naysayers. But in chapters 8 and 9, Paul addresses this issue of giving and generosity. How should a church give and why? The situation was the uh, saints in Jerusalem, Christians in Jerusalem, Jewish uh, 
by ethnicity, Christians were, were in a severe need. They were in severe poverty. And so Paul is calling these Gentile churches, the Ephesians and the Corinthians, to give to support their brothers. And his basic argument is this. This is what we're going to see in the passage. That God has acted in generous grace towards us in Christ and gives us grace to meet needs through generosity in the body of Christ. Let's look again at chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so should he complete this act among you, this act of grace. As you excel in everything, in speech, in faith, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love in you, for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So the first thing we see from those verses is this, that generosity is an act of God's grace. It is something that God gives. It's something He produces in those who have given themselves to Him. It says there in verse 1, we want you to know about God's grace given in these churches in this region of Macedonia. Paul says God has poured out His grace on these people. And he goes on to explain how in verse 2. We see the contrast here. We see a severe test of affliction, yet they have an abundance of joy. They're afflicted, yet joyful. And we're told a little more of what this affliction was. Their extreme poverty, it says, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. See that there? They were afflicted, yet joyful. They were poor, yet they were wealthy in generosity. This kind of thing only happens by God's grace. These things don't add up in human terms. Like, we go through affliction that produces despair. We go through poverty that produces want, not wealth. Naturally, in our flesh, these things produce bitterness and selfishness and, and resentment and cold-heartedness when we face these things apart from God's grace. But God, by His grace, in His church, in this situation, afflicted, affliction produces joy. Poverty produces generosity. He makes people who would be bitter into thankful people. He changes selfish people into generous people. And by His Spirit, He changes resentful people into caring people. This is all of God's grace. It says in verses 3 and 4 there that this generosity was beyond their means. They were begging Paul to give, not to keep. They were begging Paul to relieve needs, not to be relieved of their own poverty. And it was all beyond what the Apostle Paul and his companions expected. Now, I've experienced this uh, several times on the mission field. If you've, if you've been to some of these third world countries, you go. And one of the favorite things that I've, I've done there is being able to worship with churches in these places. I've been, I'm thinking of one time I went to Guatemala and we, uh, 
went to worship with a church that was near the top of a mountain. So these are these are uh, native peoples, uh, descendants of the Mayans. Um, and so they, when they're in the mountains, they're you know you're a good several hours away from society, and they tend to be very very poor people. But man, they prepared a feast for us on top of that mountain. And uh, they didn't have to do that. Like like we had food, we could eat. But they they begged us for this chance for them to provide for us to to share together this meal in the body of Christ. This only happens by God's grace. And it says in verses 5 through 7 that this is a result of them. It says, giving themselves to the Lord first and also to us. Giving themselves to the Lord to carry out His will in this act of grace. Note here that Paul never gives a dollar amount for the Macedonian church. He doesn't give a percentage or a figure. He doesn't say... Um, you know, the Macedonians were really poor and they did this, and that was good for them, but uh, you only give if you've got enough to give. The very first example he gives of, of generosity is, is from somebody that didn't have enough, from a church that didn't have enough money to give. But he shows us how God's grace leads to generosity in a church. God's grace results in a church that has joy in affliction rather than despair. I know uh, if this year has been anything... Uh, it has been a year for despair and affliction. 2020 has been that. But in the two weeks that I've been here with you, I've seen this abundance of joy here in this church. Um, God's grace results in joy in affliction. It results in a church that gives in unexpected ways. These Macedonians gave way more than they should have by earth worldly expectations. And this was God's grace, it says, verse 1, in this situation. It results in a church that's eager to give, begging for the honor, the favor of taking part in supporting other saints. Paul calls for this church to excel in this act of grace. And it comes from a church, it says, that gives itself to the Lord. So the question before we move on is this. Are we as a church willing to give ourselves to the Lord, to trust, uh, to follow His leading in generosity? Let's continue on in the passage. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The second thing we see in this passage is this, that generosity is evident in the gospel. Paul continues to show generosity in the example of Jesus. He says, you know the grace of God who, though Jesus was rich, became poor for your sake, that through his poverty you might become rich. God's grace and generosity is at the very heart of the gospel because we know that in our sins, apart from Christ, we are bankrupt. We've all sinned, Romans says, fallen short of the glory of God. We know that God is pure and holy and righteous and that we have all sinned against him. We've disobeyed his commands. We've done things that he forbids. We've not done the things that he commands. And for these things, we stand guilty in our sins, deserving punishment, uh, eternal holy punishment for our sin. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. But listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. Speaking of Christ, it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the good news of the gospel, right? That God sent His Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He added to Himself a human nature. He lived the life that we should have lived perfectly without sin. Because He was fully man, He could stand in the place of sinners as a substitute. But because He was fully God, His life had infinite value. It could cover the sins for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So He laid down His life On the cross, he died as a substitute. He paid the debt that we could not pay. The slate is wiped clean for those who are in Christ. But that's not all, because he rose from the grave. He defeated sin and death, and he offers eternal life with him to all who call on his name. So our debt is wiped away, thinking in financial terms, and we have a credit, an infinite credit. It's not... Uh, our account no longer reflects the balance of our sins. It's paid in full, but it's more than that. Um, you know, if it was just the case that our slate was wiped clean, uh, we would instantly go in the negative. We would instantly mess it up because as believers, we still struggle with sins. But our account no longer reflects our works. It reflects Jesus' works. His righteousness is accounted to us. So we stand before God not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of Jesus' perfect life. This is what it means to be in Christ, the recipient of this grace. And Paul says this is generosity. Jesus making himself poor so that in him we can become rich. Look at verse 9. He says there again, I say this not as a command, right? I can't require it. I can't force it on you. Uh, But, verse 8, to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He says there that, that those who know the grace of God uh, will reflect Christian love. They will be generous because it proves the love they have for brothers and sisters. This is not commanded. Again, forced love is no love at all. But Paul says, give generously to prove that you love your brothers and sisters. You say you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, show it, he says. So the question before us is this, before we move on. First, have you experienced God's generous grace in the gospel? Has your heart been changed by the gospel? And if so, second, is there proof in your life of your love for fellow Christians? Are you generous in your giving? Are you generous in giving to individuals, especially those in need in our church? Are you generous with your home? Are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your meals and serving one another? This is how we show genuine Christian love for one another. So we see that generosity is an act of God's grace. Second, that generosity is evident in the gospel. And the third truth we see is this, that generosity is God's means of meeting needs in the body of Christ. This is what we see in verses 10 through 15. Paul is addressing the church. He encourages the church to finish what they started, right? Uh, It says, a year ago you desired to do this work, to give to the saints in Jerusalem. Now you are to finish it. They've been committed to the cause in the past of meeting the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Now they are in a position to be able to give, and they need to be ready to do so. And he summarizes this down in verse 13. Paul says, For I do not mean that others should be eased, 
and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So he summarizes, it's a matter of fairness, it's a matter of being ready according to what you have, what God has given you. The Macedonians, at the beginning of the passage, gave generously according to what they had, which was very little. And it overflowed, it says, in this wealth of generosity. But the Corinthians here have an abundance of wealth. And thus can be much more generous. With their brothers in Jerusalem suffering, it only makes sense that their abundance should supply the need. See the connection here, that uh, generosity is an act of grace, that the very desire to give is something that God gives us by His grace. But this grace of generosity is God's way of meeting needs in the body of Christ. God intended the needs of that poor Jerusalem church to be met by the generosity of the Corinthians and the Macedonians and the Ephesians. And he makes it clear that the reverse would be true as well. Should the Corinthian church find itself in need, the other churches would help as well. Because we as a church are a body. This is Paul's uh, favorite metaphor in the scripture. Uh, If any member is in need, it says we take care of that member. When one member suffers, all suffers. You take care of your own body because your own body is one thing. And so for those in a church, for those who have been made one in Christ, we take care of one another. This means generous giving within the body because it is God's means of meeting needs. And the same applies here between churches as well. This is what we see in chapter 8. And I know this has been the case in this church. I know recently, even in the uh, aftermath of Hurricane Sally, this church was involved helping another church Uh, recover and repair their building. Look with me at verse 15. We have this quotation here from Exodus. It says, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Um, This is Paul quoting from Exodus chapter 16, from from the time when the uh, children of Israel were led out of slavery in Egypt and were being brought into the promised land. And this quote actually comes from the uh, episode where God provides manna from heaven, bread from heaven. Um, They come out of slavery and they've seen the, the sea parted and the chariots overcome by the water and all these miraculous things when they quickly realize they don't have any food. And that'll, that'll do you in every time when you realize how hungry you are. And they say, uh, man, would that we were back in slavery. They shake their fist at God. Like, you brought us out here just to die. They've quickly become bitter. You read about this in Exodus. People are very fickle. Their uh, minds change very quickly. And so God promises to provide his people bread from heaven. Later we see in chapter 17, water from a rock as well as even meat. But in the New Testament, we see how so many things in the Old Testament are understood and how they're quoted and how they are fulfilled. We know that God can and is perfectly able to to rain manna from heaven again. He could choose to work in a supernatural miracle. But here, Paul sees the generosity of the Corinthian church as parallel to God's manna from heaven. The miracle in this case is God's grace changing selfish hearts into being generous hearts. 
And this is just as much a miraculous work of God as the miracle of manna from heaven. And in Paul's mind, this generosity providing for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem is just as much a direct act of God's grace as was the manna from heaven in the Exodus. Josh mentioned this last week. New Testament does not teach us to trust in magic money showing up randomly to provide for things. God certainly can do that. He can, he can cause money to show up and meet needs uh, wherever he wills. But that's not the plan he's revealed to us. We know from this passage that his plan to take care of his people is, by his grace, to make his people a generous people. They'll experience his grace and provision through hearts changed by the gospel. So this is ordinary, normal, Christian, new covenant, miraculous generosity. And I know I've seen this over and over again in my own life. Um, We've seen it in our family. Uh, Many of you know that that we're in the process of adopting a child from India. And uh, Lord willing, we are very near the end of that process. And so... um, God has been good to us, but it has been a very, very long process. We started about, what, about four years ago, five years ago. Um, God's timing has been perfect as well as his provision, but adoption is a long, expensive process. You know, I've heard somebody say this and put it really starkly. You know we live in a fallen world when an abortion can cost somebody $40 and an adoption can cost somebody $40,000. This is the world we, we live in, but by God's grace, he has been generous to our family to allow us to do this. He has provided the money and the time and all sorts of things that we needed to pursue a child in this way. And God will be glorified in the life of this child as she comes to know that she is important, that she is loved by God. And so God's grace has already been evident, even in this process, through his provision. It's not magic money. It's faithful, generous people helping to take care of needs in the body. And I've already seen this in the past few weeks. This church is a generous church. So in a sense, I'm preaching to the choir, right? But I just want to remind you that your generosity, that through it, God is giving grace, that he is meeting needs for his glory. So as we close, I just want to ask you to consider a few things. First, have you experienced in your life this generous grace of Christ? Have you come to recognize your bankruptcy in sin, your need for God's grace? If not, I would love to talk to you about that. We're going to sing here in a moment as we close, and I'll be available um, in the back of the church, and we'd love to talk to you about the gospel. But if you have to come to know Christ, I would ask you to consider again God's grace towards you, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the very worst thing that could ever happen to you, that you stand before God in your sins, that thing already happened, but it didn't happen to you. It happened to Jesus on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that the best thing that could ever happen to any of us, eternal life reconciled with God, has happened, is secure. It's this hope laid up in heaven for us. We've received generous grace from God. And so all this puts our earthly goods in perspective. We have been given church here an abundance of wealth to supply the needs of others. What needs are there in this church? What needs do you know of of brothers and sisters in Christ? What needs can you help meet and thus be God's very hand of grace, his provision in those situations? Let's pray together and then we'll sing.